Hey everyone, it's me. Hope you're all doing well. Hope you're all staying safe, staying healthy, staying alive. Hope you're all doing well. I haven't had to say, hey, hope your commute's going well for a while, which is nice. I hope no one's having to commute unless you want to commute. And just, just stay safe out there, everyone. For the month of June, we're going to be talking about Algernon Blackwood, and also, we're also going to be talking about Glacky for People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos. Stay with us, and also remember that this show is brought to you by BunnySlippers.com. Check out their Highland Cow Slipper. You know, it's, it's, it's getting warm out, but if you're like me, can't sleep having problems, wandering around the house, middle of the night, cleaning. Yeah, linoleum's cold, hardwood floors are cold, ceramics cold, tiles cold. You know what's not cold? Bunny slippers, Highland Cow slippers. Look cool, like uh, what, 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 Chris Knight from Real Genius with Val Kilmer. Get some cool bunny slippers and then head on over to founditemclothing.com and get one of those cool shirts that he wears. I Heart Toxic Waste or Surf Nicaragua or any of those shirts that, I don't know, maybe they're problematic nowadays. I, I, I don't remember what they all are. And you know what? If there was something that you thought was funny before that it's now problematic and you've decided to change your mind about whether or not you think it's problematic or not, you know, you you no longer think that certain jokes in Revenge of the Nerds are funny. Good for you. That's called growth, and it's okay. You're not a you're not a hypocrite if you change your mind. If that you decide that past beliefs aren't what they are, and that you're smarter about it. Remember to use your voice. Remember to vote. Remember to help people who need help. Don't. I don't know. I, I don't. I don't feel like it's my job to tell people what to do. I don't feel like it's my job to. But oh man, I, I sure feel responsible if I don't. I sure feel like I could have said something. Someone could have learned something, and whatever. I feel like I've been bullied in the past by people who don't want to hear what I have to say or don't like what I have to say. And those people can pretty much go away. I don't want them listening to my show. I don't want them writing in. Stay safe, and check the show notes for how you can help people. And here's some Algernon Blackwood for Weird Tales for you. Here we go. Four Weird Tales by Algernon Blackwood. Sand, Chapter 4. It was so simple a maneuver by which fate began the innocent game. The woman left a couple of books behind her on the table one night, and Henriot, after a moment's hesitation, took them out after her. He knew the titles, The House of the Master and The House of the Hidden Places, both singular interpretations of the pyramids that once had held his own mind spellbound. Their ideas had been since disproved, if he remembered rightly, yet the titles were a clue a clue to that imaginative part of his mind that was so busy constructing theories and had found its stride. Loose sheets of paper, covered with notes and a minute handwriting, lay between the pages. But these, of course, he did not read, 
noticing only that they were written round designs of various kinds, intricate designs. He discovered Vance in a corner of the smoking lounge. The woman had disappeared. Vance thanked him politely. My aunt is so forgetful sometimes, he said, and took them with a covered eagerness that did not escape the other's observation. He folded up the sheets and put them carefully in his pocket. On one there was an ink-sketched map, crammed with detail, that might well have referred to some portion of the desert. The points of the compass stood out boldly at the bottom. They were involved geometrical designs again. Henriot saw them. They exchanged, then, the common places of conversation, but these led to nothing further. Vance was nervous and betrayed impatience. He presently excused himself and left the lounge. Ten minutes later he passed through the outer hall, the woman beside him, and the pair of them, wrapped up in a cloak and ulster, went out into the night. At the door Vance turned and threw a quick investigating glance in his direction. There seemed a hint of questioning in that glance. It might almost have been a tentative invitation. But also he wanted to see if their exit had been particularly noticed, and by whom. This, briefly told, was the first maneuver by which fate introduced them. There was nothing in it. The details were so insignificant, so slight the conversation, so meager the pieces thus added to Henriot's imaginative structure. Yet they somehow built it up and made it solid. The outline in his mind began to stand foursquare. That writing, those designs, the manner of the man, their going out together, the final curious look, each and all betrayed points of a hidden thing. Subconsciously he was excavating their buried purposes. The sand was shifting. The concentration of his mind incessantly upon them removed it grain by grain and speck by speck. Tips of the smothered thing emerged. Presently a subsidence would follow with a rush, a light would blaze upon its skeleton. He felt it stirring underneath his feet, this flowing movement of light, dry, heaped-up sand. It was always sand. Then other incidents of a similar kind came about, clearing the way to a natural acquaintanceship. Henriot watched the process with amusement, yet with another feeling too that was only a little less than anxiety. A keen observer, no detail escaped him, he saw the forces of their lives draw closer. It made him think of the devices of young people who desire to know one another, yet cannot get a proper introduction. Fate condescended to such little tricks. They wanted a third person, he began to feel. A third was necessary to some plan they had on hand, and they waited to see if he could fill the place. This woman, with whom he had yet exchanged no single word, seemed so familiar to him, well known for years. They weighed and watched him, wondering if he would do. None of the devices were too obviously used, but at length Henriot picked up so many forgotten articles and heard so many significant phrases casually let fall that he began to feel like the villain in a machine-made play 
where the hero forever drops clues his enemy is intended to discover. Introduction followed inevitably. My aunt can tell you she knows Arabic perfectly. He'd been discussing the meaning of some local name or other with a neighbor after dinner, and Vance had joined them. The neighbor moved away. These two were left standing alone, and he accepted a cigarette from the other's case. There was a rustle of skirts behind them. Here she comes, said Vance. You will let me introduce you. He did not ask for Henriot's name. He had already taken the trouble to find it out. Another little betrayal, and another clue. It was in a secluded corner of the great hall, and Henriot turned to see the woman's stately figure coming towards them across the thick carpet that deadened her footsteps. She came sailing up, her black eyes fixed upon his face, very erect, head upright, shoulders almost squared. She moved wonderfully well. There was dignity and power in her walk. She was dressed in black, and her face was like the night. He found it impossible to say what lent her this air of impressiveness and solemnity that was almost majestic. But there was this touch of darkness and of power in the way she came that made him think of some sphinx-like figure of stone, some idol motionless in all its parts but moving as a whole and gliding across sand. Beneath those level lids her eyes stared hard at him, and the faint sensation of distress stirred in him deep, deep down. Where had he seen those eyes before? He bowed as she joined them, and Vance led the way to the armchairs in a corner of the lounge. The meeting, as the talk that followed, he felt were all part of a preconceived plan. It had happened before. The woman, that is, was familiar to him, to some part of his being that had dropped stitches of old, old memory. Lady Statham. At first the name had disappointed him. So many folk wear titles as syllables in certain tongues wear accents, without them being mute, unnoticed, unpronounced. Non-entities, born to names, so often claim attention for their insignificance in this way. But this woman, had she been Jemima Jones, would have made the name distinguished and select. She was a big and somber personality. Why was it, he wondered afterwards, that for a moment something in him shrank, and that his mind, metaphorically speaking, flung up an arm in self-protection. The instinct flashed and passed, but it seemed to him born of an automatic feeling that he must protect, not himself, but the woman from the man. There was confusion in it all. Links were missing. He studied her intently. She was a woman who had none of the external feminine signals in either dress or manner, no graces, no little womanly hesitations and alarms, no daintiness, yet neither anything distinctly masculine. Her charm was strong, possessing, only he kept forgetting that he was talking to a woman. And the things she inspired in him included, with respect and wonder, somewhere also this curious hint of dread. This instinct to protect her fled as soon as it was born, for the interest of the conversation in which she so quickly plunged him 
obliterated all minor emotions whatsoever. Here, for the first time, he drew close to Egypt, the Egypt he had sought so long. It was not to be explained. He felt it. Beginning with commonplaces such as, you like Egypt, you find here what you expected, she led him into better regions with, one finds here what one brings. He knew the delightful experience of talking fluently on subject he was at home in and to someone who understood. The feeling at first that to this woman he could not say mere anythings slipped into its opposite, that he could say everything. Strangers ten minutes ago, they were at once in deep and intimate talk together. He found his ideas readily followed, agreed with up to a point, the point which permits discussion to start from a basis of general accord towards speculation. In the excitement of ideas, he neglected the uncomfortable note that had stirred his caution, forgot the warning, too. Her mind, moreover, seemed known to him. He was often aware of what she was going to say before he actually heard it. The current of her thoughts struck a familiar gait, and more than once he experienced vividly again the odd sensation that it had all happened before. The very sentences and phrases with which she pointed the turns of her unusual ideas were never wholly unexpected. For her ideas were decidedly unusual, in the sense that she accepted without question speculations not commonly deemed worth consideration at all, indeed not ordinarily even known. Henriot knew them because he had read in many fields. It was the strength of her belief that fascinated him. She offered no apologies. She knew. And while he talked, she listening with folded arms and her black eyes fixed upon his own, Richard Vance watched with vigilant eyes and listened, too, ceaselessly alert. Vance joined in little enough, however, gave no opinions, his attitude one of general acquiescence. Twice, when pauses of slackening interest made it possible, Henriot fancied he surprised another quality in this negative attitude. Interpreting it each time differently, he yet dismissed both interpretations with a smile. His imagination leaped so absurdly to violent conclusions. They were not tenable. Vance was neither her keeper nor was he in some fashion a detective. Yet in his manner was sometimes this suggestion of the detective order. He watched with such deep attention, and he concealed it so clumsily with affectation of careless indifference. There is nothing more dangerous than that impulsive intimacy strangers sometimes adopt when an atmosphere of mutual empathy takes them by surprise, for it is akin to the false frankness friends affect when telling candidly one another's faults. The mood is invariably regretted later. Henriot, however, yielded to it now with something like abandon. The pleasure of talking with this woman was so unexpected and so keen. For Lady Statham believed apparently in some Egypt of her dreams. Her interest was neither historical, archaeological, nor political. It was religious, yet hardly of this earth at all. 
The conversation turned upon the knowledge of the ancient Egyptians from an unearthly point of view, and even while she talked he was vaguely aware that it was her mind talking through his own. She drew out his ideas and made him say them, but this he was properly aware of only afterwards, that she had cleverly, mercilessly pumped him of all he had ever known or read upon the subject. Moreover, what Vance watched so intently was himself, and the reactions in himself this remarkable woman produced. That also he realized later. His first impression that these two belonged to what may be called the crank order was justified by the conversation. But at least it was interesting crankiness, and the belief behind it made it even fascinating. Long before the end, he surprised in her a more vital form of his own attitude that anything may be true, since knowledge has never yet found final answers to any of the biggest questions. He understood from sentences dropped early in the talk that she was among those few superstitious folk who think that the old Egyptians came closer to reading the eternal riddles of the world than any others and that their knowledge was a remnant of that ancient wisdom religion which existed in the superb dark civilization of the sunken Atlantis, lost continent that once joined Africa to Mexico. Eighty thousand years ago, the dim sands of Poseidonus, great island adjoining the main continent which itself had vanished a vast period before, sank down beneath the waves and the entire known world today was descended from its survivors. Hence the significant fact that all religions and mythological systems begin with the story of a flood, some cataclysmic upheaval that destroyed the world. Egypt itself was colonized by a group of Atlantean priests who brought their curious deep knowledge with them. They had foreseen the cataclysm. Lady Statham talked well, bringing into her great dream the strong, insistent quality of belief and fact. She knew from Plato to Donnelly all that the minds of men have ever speculated upon the gorgeous legend. The evidence for such a sunken continent, Henriot has skimmed it too in years gone by, she made bewilderingly complete. He had heard Baconians demolish Shakespeare with an array of evidence equally overwhelming. It catches the imagination, though not the mind. Yet out of her facts as she presented them grew a strange likelihood. The force of this woman's personality and her calm and quiet way of believing all she talked about took her listener to some extent further than ever before, certainly, into the great dream after her. And the dream, to say the least, was a picturesque one, laden with wonderful possibilities, for as she talked the spirit of old Egypt moved up, staring down upon him out of eyes lidded so curiously level. Hitherto all prated to him of the Arabs, their ancient faith and customs, and the splendor of the Bedouins, those princes of the desert, but what he sought barely confessed in words even to himself was something older far than this and this strange dark woman brought it close deeps in his soul long slumbering awoke he heard forgotten questions 
Only in this brief way could he attempt to sum up the storm she roused in him. She carried him far beyond mere outline, however, though afterwards he recalled the details with difficulty. So much more was suggested than actually expressed. She contrived to make the general modern skepticism an evidence of cheap mentality. It was so easy, the depth it affects to conceal mere emptiness. We have tried all things and found all wanting. The mind, as measuring instrument, merely confessed inadequate. Various shrewd judgments of this kind increased his respect, although her acceptance went so far beyond his own. And while the label of credulity refused to stick to her, her sense of imaginative wonder enabled her to escape that dreadful compromise, a man's mind and a woman's temperament. She fascinated him. The spiritual worship of the ancient Egyptians, she held, was a symbolical explanation of things generally alluded to as the secrets of life and death. Their knowledge was a remnant of the wisdom of Atlantis. Material relics, equally misunderstood, still stood today at Karnak, Stonehenge, and in the mysterious writings on buried Mexican temples and cities, so significantly akin to the hieroglyphics upon the Egyptian tombs. The one misinterpreted as literally as the other, she suggested, yet both fragments of an advanced knowledge that found its grave in the sea. The wisdom of that old spiritual system has vanished from the world, only a degraded literalism left of its undecipherable language. The jewel has been lost, and the casket is filled with sand, sand, sand. How keenly her black eyes searched his own as she said it, and how oddly she made the little word resound. The syllable drew out almost into chanting. Echoes answered from the depths within him, carrying it on and on across some desert of forgotten belief. Veils of sand flew everywhere about his mind. Curtains lifted. Whole hills of sand went shifting into level surfaces whence gardens of dim outline emerged to meet the sunlight. But the sand may be removed. It was her nephew speaking almost for the first time, and the interruption had an odd effect, introducing a sharply practical element, for the tone expressed, so far as he dared express it, disapproval. It was a baited observation, an invitation to opinion. We are not sand diggers, Mr. Henriot, put in Lady Statham before he decided to respond. Our object is quite another one, and I believe, I have a feeling, she added almost questioningly, that you might be interested enough to help us, perhaps. He only wondered the direct attack had not come sooner. Its bluntness hardly surprised him. He felt himself leap forward to accept it. A sudden subsidence had freed his feet. Then the warning operated suddenly for an instant. Henriot was interested. More, he was half seduced. But as yet he did not mean to be included in their purposes, whatever these might be. That shrinking dread came back a moment and was gone again before he could question it. 
His eyes looked full at Lady Statham. What is it that you know? they asked her. Tell me the things we once knew together, you and I. These words are merely trifling. And why does another man now stand in my place? For the sands heaped upon my memory are shifting, and it is you who are moving them away. His soul whispered it. His voice said quite another thing, although the words he used seemed oddly chosen. There is much in the ideas of ancient Egypt that has attracted me ever since I can remember, though I have never caught up with anything definite enough to follow. There was majesty somewhere in their conceptions, a large, calm majesty of spiritual dominion, one might call it perhaps. I am interested. Her face remained expressionless as she listened, but there was grave conviction in the eyes that held him like a spell. He saw through them into dim, faint pictures whose background was always sand. He forgot that he was speaking with a woman, a woman who half an hour ago had been a stranger to him. He followed these faded mental pictures, though he never caught them up. It was like his dream in London. Lady Statham was talking. He had not noticed the means by which she effected the abrupt transition of familiar beliefs of old Egypt, of the Ka, or double, by whose existence the survival of the soul was possible, even its return into manifested physical life, of the astrology or influence of the heavenly bodies upon all sublunar activities, of terrific forms of other life, known to the ancient worship of Atlantis, great potencies that might be evoked by ritual and ceremonial, and of their lesser influence as recognized in certain lower forms, hence treated with veneration as the sacred animal branch of this dim religion. And she spoke lightly of the modern learning which so glibly imagined it was the animals themselves that were looked upon as gods. The bull, the bird, the crocodile, the cat. It's there they all go so absurdly wrong, she said, taking the symbol for the power symbolized. Yet natural enough. The mind today wears blinkers, studies only the details seen directly before it. Had none of us experienced love, we should think the first lover mad. First today know the powers they knew, hence deny them. If the world were deaf, it would stand with mockery before a hearing group swayed by an orchestra, pitying both listeners and performers. It would deem our admiration of a great swinging bell mere foolish worship of form and movement. Similarly, with high powers that once expressed themselves in common forms where best they could, being themselves bodiless. The learned men classify the forms with painstaking detail, but deity has gone out of life. The powers symbolized are no longer experienced. These powers, you suggest, then, their cause, as it were, may still... But she waved aside the interruption. They are satisfied, as the common people were, with the degraded literalism, she went on. Newt was the heavens who spread herself across the earth in the form of a woman. Shu, the vastness of space, 
The Ibis typified Thoth, and Hathor was the patron of the western hills. Khonshu, the moon, was personified, as was the deity of the Nile. But the high priest of Ra, the sun, you notice, remained ever the great one of visions. The high priest, the great one of visions. How wonderfully again she made the sentence sing. She put splendor into it. The pictures shifted suddenly closer in his mind. He saw the grandeur of Memphis and Heliopolis rise against the stars and shake the sand of ages from their stern old temples. You think it's possible, then, to get into touch with these high powers you speak of? Powers once manifested in common forms? Henriot asked the question with a degree of conviction and solemnity that surprised himself. The scenery changed about him as he listened. The spacious halls of his former cathedral palace melted into desert spaces. He smelt the open wilderness, the sand that haunted Heluan. The soft-footed Arab servants moved across the hall in their white sheets like eddies of dust the wind stirred from the Libyan dunes. And over these two strangers close beside him stole a queer, indefinite alteration. Moods and emotions, nameless as unknown stars, rose through his soul, trailing dark mists of memory from unfathomable distances. Lady Statham answered him indirectly. He found himself wishing that those steady eyes would sometimes close. Love is known only by feeling it, she said, her voice deepening a little. Behind the form you feel the person loved. The process is an evocation, pure and simple, an arduous ceremonial involving worship and devotional preparation is the means. It is a difficult ritual, the only one acknowledged by the world as still effectual. Ritual is a passageway of the soul into the infinite. He might have said the words himself. The thought lay in him while she uttered it. Evocation everywhere in life was as true as assimilation. Nevertheless, he stared his companion full in the eyes with a touch of almost rude amazement. But no further questions prompted themselves, or rather, he declined to ask them. He recalled, somehow uneasily, that in ceremonial the points of the compass have significance, standing for forces and activities that sleep there until invoked, and a passing light fell upon that curious midnight request in the corridor upstairs. These two were on the track of undesirable experiments, he thought. They wished to include him, too. You go at night sometimes into the desert, he heard himself saying. It was impulsive and miscalculated. His feeling that it would be wise to change the conversation resulted in giving it fresh impetus instead. We saw you there, in the Wadi Hof, put in Vance, suddenly breaking his long silence. You too sleep out then? It means, you know, the valley of fear. We wondered, it was Lady Statham's voice, and she leaned forward eagerly as she said it, then abruptly left the sentence incomplete. Henriot started. A sense of momentary acute discomfort again ran over him, 
The same second she continued, though obviously changing the phrase, We wondered how you spent your day there during the heat. But you paint, don't you? You draw, I mean. The commonplace question he realized that every fiber of his being meant something they deemed significant. Was it his talent for drawing that they sought to use him for? Even as he answered with a simple affirmative, he had a flash of intuition that might be fanciful, yet that might be true. That this extraordinary pair were intent upon some ceremony of evocation that should summon into actual physical expression some power, some type of life, no long ago to ancient worship, and that they even sought to fix its bodily outline with the pencil, his pencil. A gateway of incredible adventure opened at his feet. He balanced on the edge of knowing unutterable things. Here was a clue that might lead him towards the hidden Egypt he'd ever craved to know. An awful hand was beckoning. The sands were shifting. He saw the million eyes of the desert watching him from beneath the level lids of centuries. Speck by speck and grain by grain, the sand that smothered memory lifted the countless wrappings that embalmed it. And he was willing, yet afraid. Why in the world did he hesitate and shrink? Why was it that the presence of the silent, watching personality in the chair beside him kept caution still alive, with warning close behind? The pictures in his mind were gorgeously colored. It was Richard Vance who somehow streaked them through with black. A thing of darkness, born of this man's unassertive presence, flitted ever across the scenery, marring its grandeur with something evil, petty, dreadful. He held a horrible thought alive. His mind was thinking venal purposes. In Henriot himself, imagination had grown curiously heated, fed by what had been suggested rather than actually said. Ideas of immensity crowded his brain, yet never assumed definite shape. They were familiar, even as this strange woman was familiar. Once, long ago, he had known them well, had even practiced them beneath these bright Egyptian stars. Whence came this prodigious glad excitement in his heart, this sense of mighty powers coaxed down to influence the very details of daily life? Behind them, for all their vagueness, lay an archetypal splendor, fraught with forgotten meanings. He had always been aware of it in this mysterious land, but it had ever hitherto eluded him. It hovered everywhere. He had felt it brooding behind the towering colossi at Thebes, in the skeletons of wasted temples, in the uncouth comeliness of the Sphinx, and in the crude terror of the pyramids even. Over the whole of Egypt hung its invisible wings. These were but isolated fragments of the body that might express it, and the desert remained its cleanest, truest symbol. Sand knew it closest. Sand might even give it bodily form and outline. But while it escaped description in his mind, as equally it eluded visualization in his soul, he felt that it combined with its vastness something infinitely small as well. 
of such wee particles as the giant desert born. Henriot started nervously in his chair, convicted once more of unconscionable staring, and at the same moment a group of hotel people returning from the dance passed through the hall and nodded him good night. The scent of the women reached him, and with it the sound of their voices discussing personalities just left behind. A London atmosphere came with them. He caught trivial phrases, uttered in a drawling tone, and followed by the shrill laughter of the girl. They passed upstairs discussing their little things like marionettes upon a tiny stage. But their passage brought him back to things of modern life and to some standard of familiar measurement. The pictures that his soul had gazed at so deep within, he realized, were a pictorial transfer caught incompletely from this woman's vivid mind. He had seen the desert as the grey, enormous tomb where hovered still the Ka of ancient Egypt. Sand screened her visage with the veil of centuries. But she was there, and she was living. Egypt herself had pitched a temporary camp in him, and then moved on. There was a momentary break, a sense of abruptness and dislocation. And then he became aware that Lady Statham had been speaking for some time before he caught her actual words, and that a certain change had come into her voice, as also into her manner. End of chapter 4 of Sand Four Weird Tales by Algernon Blackwood Sand, Chapter 5 She was leaning closer to him, her face suddenly glowing and alive. Through the stone figure coursed the fires of a passion that deepened the coal-black eyes and communicated a hint of light, of exultation, to her whole person. It was incredibly moving. To this deep passion was due the power he had felt. It was her entire life. She lived it. She would die for it. Her calmness of manner enhanced its effect. Hence the strength of those first impressions that had stormed him. The woman had belief. However wild and strange, it was sacred to her. The secret of her influence was conviction. His attitude shifted several points then. The wonder in him passed over into awe. The things she knew were real. They were not merely imaginative speculations. I knew I was not wrong in thinking you in sympathy with this line of thought, she was saying, in lower voice, steady with earnestness, and as though she had read his mind. You too know, though perhaps you hardly realize that you know. It lies so deep in you that you only get vague feelings of it, intimations of memory. Isn't that the case? Henriot gave assent with his eyes. It was the truth. What we know instinctively, she continued, is simply what we are trying to remember. Knowledge is memory. She paused a moment, watching his face closely. At least you are free from that cheap scepticism which labels these old beliefs as superstition. It was not even a question. I worship real belief, of any kind, he stammered for her words and the close proximity of her atmosphere caused a strange upheaval in his heart that he could not account for. 
he faltered in his speech it is the most vital quality in life rarer than deity he was using her own phrases even it's it is creative it constructs the world anew and may reconstruct the old she said it lifting her face above him a little so that her eyes looked down into his own it grew big and somehow masculine it was the face of a priest spiritual power in it where oh where in the echoing past had he known this woman's soul he saw her in another setting a forest of columns dim about her towering above giant aisles again he felt the desert had come close into this tent-like hall of the hotel came the sifting of tiny sand it heaped softly about the very furniture against his feet blocking the exits of door and window it shrouded the little present the wind that brought it stirred a veil that had hung for ages motionless she had been saying many things that he had missed while his mind went searching there were types of life the atlantean system knew it might revive life unmanifested to-day in any bodily form was the sentence he caught with his return to the actual present a type of life he whispered looking about him as though to see who it was had joined them you mean a soul some kind of soul alien to humanity or to to any forms of living thing in the world to-day what she had been saying reached him somehow it seemed though he had not heard the words themselves still hesitating he was yet so eager to hear already he felt she meant to include him in her purposes and that in the end he must go willingly so strong was her persuasion on his mind and he felt as if he knew vaguely what was coming before she answered his curious question prompting it indeed rose in his mind that strange idea of the group soul the theory that big souls cannot express themselves in a single individual but need an entire group for their full manifestation he listened intently the reflection that this sudden intimacy was unnatural he rejected for many conversations were really gathered into one long watching and preparation on both sides had cleared the way for the ripening of acquaintance into confidence how long he dimly wondered but if this conception of the group soul was not new the suggestion lady statham developed out of it was both new and startling and yet always so curiously familiar its value for him lay not in far-fetched evidence that supported it but in the deep belief which made it a vital asset in an honest inner life an individual she said quietly one soul expressed completely in a single person i mean is exceedingly rare not often is a physical instrument found perfect enough to provide it with adequate expression in the lower ranges of humanity certainly in animal and insect life one soul is shared by many behind a tribe of savages stands one savage a flock of birds is a single bird scattered through the consciousness of all they wheel in mid-air they migrate they obey the deep intelligence called instinct all as one the life of any one lion is the life of all the lion group soul that manifests itself in the entire genus an ant heap is a single ant through the bees spread the consciousness of a single bee 
Henrio knew what she was working up to. In his eagerness to hasten disclosure, he interrupted. And there may be types of life that have no corresponding bodily expression at all, then? He asked, as though the question were forced out of him. They exist as powers, unmanifested on the earth today. Powers, she answered, watching him closely with unswerving stare that need a group to provide their body, their physical expression, if they came back. Came back, he repeated below his breath. But she heard him. They once had expression. Egypt, Atlantis knew them, spiritual powers that never visit the world today. Bodies, he whispered softly. Actual bodies? Their sphere of action, you see, would be their body, and it might be physical outline. So potent a descent of spiritual life would select materials for its body where it could find them. Our conventional notion of a body, what is it? A single outline moving altogether in one direction. For little human souls or fragments, this is sufficient. But for vaster types of soul, an entire host would be required. A church? he ventured. Some body of belief, you surely mean? She bowed her head a moment in assent. She was determined he should seize her meaning fully. A wave of spiritual awakening, a descent of spiritual life upon a nation, she answered slowly, forms itself a church, and the body of true believers are its sphere of action. They are literally its bodily expression, each individual believer is a corpuscle in that body. The power has provided itself with a vehicle of manifestation, otherwise we could not know it. And the more real the belief of each individual, the more perfect the expression of the spiritual life behind them all. A group soul walks the earth. Moreover, a nation naturally devout could attract a type of soul unknown to a nation that denies all faith. Faith brings back the gods, but today belief is dead, and deity has left the world. She talked on and on, developing this main idea, that in days of older faiths there were deific types of life upon the earth, evoked by worship and beneficial to humanity, they had long ago withdrawn, because the worship which brought them down had died the death. The world had grown pettier. These vast centres of spiritual power found no body in which they could now express themselves or manifest. Her thoughts and phrases poured over him like sand. It was always sand, he felt, burying the present and uncovering the past. He tried to steady his mind upon familiar objects, but wherever he looked, sand stared him in the face. Outside these trivial walls, the desert lay listening. It lay waiting, too. Vance himself had dropped out of recognition. He belonged to the world of things today. But this woman and himself stood thousands of years away, beneath the columns of a temple in the sands. And the sands were moving, his feet went shifting with them, running down vistas of ageless memory that woke terror by their sheer immensity of distance. Like a muffled voice that called to him through many veils and wrappings, he heard her describe the stupendous powers that evocation might coax down again among the world of men. "'To what useful end?' he asked at length. Amazed at his own temerity, 
and because he knew instinctively the answer in advance. It rose through these layers of coiling memory in his soul. "'The extension of spiritual knowledge and the widening of life,' she answered. "'The link with the unearthly kingdom, wherein this ancient system went forever searching, would be re-established. Complete rehabilitation might follow.' Portions, little portions of these powers, expressed themselves naturally once in certain animal types, instinctive life that did not deny or reject them. The worship of sacred animals was the relic of a once gigantic system of evocation, not of monsters, and she smiled sadly, but of powers that were willing and ready to descend when worship summoned them. Again, beneath his breath, Henriot heard himself murmur. His own voice startled him as he whispered it. Actual bodily shape and outline. Materials for bodies is everywhere, she answered equally low. Dust to which we all return. Sand, if you prefer it. Fine, fine sand. Life moulds it easily enough when that life is potent. A certain confusion spread slowly through his mind as he heard her. He lit a cigarette and smoked some minutes in silence. Lady Statham and her nephew waited for him to speak. At length, after some inner battling and hesitation, he put the question that he knew they waited for. It was impossible to resist any longer. "'It would be interesting to know the method,' he said, "'and to revive, perhaps by experiment.' Before he could complete his thought, she took him up. "'There are some who claim to know it,' she said gravely, her eyes a moment masterful. "'A clue thus followed might lead to the entire reconstruction I spoke of.' "'And the method?' he repeated faintly. "'Evoke the power by ceremonial evocation. The ritual is obtainable, and note the form it assumes. Then establish it.' This shape or outline once secured could then be made permanent, a mould for its return at will, its natural physical expression here on earth. Idol, he exclaimed. Image, she replied at once. Life, before we can know it, must have a body. Our souls, in order to manifest here, need a material vehicle. And to obtain this form or outline, he began, to fix it, rather would be required the clever pencil of a fearless looker-on, someone not engaged in the actual evocation. This form, accurately made permanent in solid matter, say in stone, would provide a channel always open. Experiment, properly speaking, might then begin. The cistern of power behind would be accessible. An amazing proposition, Henriot exclaimed. What surprised him was that he felt no desire to laugh, and little even to doubt. "'Yet known to every religion that ever deserved the name,' put in Vance, like a voice from a distance. Blackness came somehow with his interruption, a touch of darkness. He spoke eagerly. To all the talk that followed, and there was too much of it, Henriot listened with but half an ear. This one idea stormed through him with an uproar that killed attention. Judgment was held utterly in abeyance. 
he carried away from it some vague suggestion that this woman had hinted at previous lives she half remembered and that every year she came to egypt haunting the sands and temples in the effort to recover lost clues and he recalled afterwards that she said this all came to me as a child just as though it was something half remembered there was the further suggestion that he himself was not unknown to her that they too had met before but this compared to the grave certainty of the rest was merest fantasy that did not hold his attention he answered hardly knowing what he said his preoccupation with other thoughts deep down was so intense that he was probably barely polite uttering empty phrases with his mind elsewhere his one desire was to escape and be alone and it was with genuine relief that he presently excused himself and went upstairs to bed the halls he noticed were empty an arab servant waited to put the lights out he walked up for the lift had long ceased running and the magic of old egypt stalked beside him the studies that had fascinated his mind in earlier youth returned with the power that had subdued his mind in boyhood the cult of osiris woke in his blood again horus and nephthys stirred in their long-forgotten centres there revived in him too long buried the awful glamour of those liturgical rites and vast body of observances those spells and formulae of incantation of the oldest known recension that years ago had captured his imagination and belief the book of the dead trumpet voices called to his heart again across the desert of some dim past there were forms of life impulses from the creative power which is the universe other than the soul of man they could be known a spiritual exaltation roused by the words and presence of this singular woman shouted to him as he went then as he closed his bedroom door carefully locking it there stood beside him vance the forgotten figure of vance came up close the watching eyes the simulated interest the feigned belief the detective mental attitude these broke through the grandiose panorama bringing darkness vance strong personality that hid behind assumed nonentity for some purpose of his own intruded with sudden violence demanding an explanation of his presence and with an equal suddenness explanation offered itself then and there it came unsought its horror of certainty utterly unjustified and it came in this unexpected fashion behind the interest and acquiescence of the man ran fear but behind the vivid fear ran another thing that henriot now perceived was vile for the first time in his life henriot knew it at close quarters actual ready to operate though familiar enough in daily life to be of common occurrence henriot had never realized it as he did now so close and terrible in the same way he had never realized that he would die vanish from the busy world of men and women forgotten as though he had never existed an eddy of wind-blown dust and in the man named richard vance this thing was close upon blossom henriot could not name it to himself even in thought it appalled him he undressed hurriedly almost with the child's idea of finding safety between the sheets his mind undressed itself as well the business of the day laid itself automatically aside the will sank down desire grew inactive henriot was exhausted 
but in that stage towards slumber when thinking stops and only fugitive pictures pass across the mind in shadowy dance his brain ceased shouting its mechanical explanations and his soul unveiled a peering eye great limbs of memory smothered by the activities of the present stirred their stiffened lengths through the sands of long ago sands this woman had begun to excavate from some far-off pre-existence they had surely known together vagueness and certainty ran hand in hand details were unrecoverable but the emotions in which they were embedded moved he turned restlessly in his bed striving to seize the amazing clues and follow them but deliberate effort hid them instantly again they retired instantly into the subconsciousness with the brain of this body he now occupied they had nothing to do the brain stored memories of each life only this ancient script was graven in his soul subconsciousness alone could interpret and reveal and it was his subconscious memory that lady statham had been so busily excavating dimly it stirred and moved about the depths within him never clearly seen indefinite felt as a yearning after unrecoverable knowledge against the darker background of vance's fear and sinister purpose both of this life and recent he saw the grandeur of this woman's impossible dream and knew beyond argument or reason that it was true judgment and will asleep he left the impossibility aside and took the grandeur the belief of lady statham was not credulity and superstition it was memory still to this day over the sands of egypt hovered the immense spiritual potencies so vast that they could only know physical expression in a group in many their sphere of bodily manifestation must be a host each individual unit in that host a corpuscle in the whole the wind rising from the libyan wastes across the nile swept up against the exposed side of the hotel and made his windows rattle the old sad winds of egypt henriot got out of bed to fasten the outside shutters he stood a moment and watched the moon floating down behind the saqqara pyramids the pleiades and orion's belt hung brilliantly the great bear was close to the horizon in the sky above the desert swung ten thousand stars no sounds rose from the streets of helouan the tide of sand was slowly coming in and a flock of enormous thoughts swooped past him from fields of this unbelievable lost memory the desert pale in the moon was coextensive with the night too huge for comfort or understanding yet charged to the brim with infinite peace behind its majesty of silence lay whispers of a vanished language that once could call with power upon mighty spiritual agencies its skirts were folded now but slowly across the league of sand they began to stir and rearrange themselves he grew suddenly aware of this enveloping shroud of sand as the raw material of bodily expression form the sand was in his imagination and his mind shaking loosely the folds of its gigantic skirts it rose it moved a little towards him he saw the eternal countenance of the desert watching him immobile and unchanging behind these shifting veils the winds laid so carefully over it egypt the ancient egypt turned in her vast sarcophagus of desert wakening from her sleep of ages at the belief of approaching worshippers 
only in this insignificant manner could he express a letter of the terrific language that crowded to seek expression through his soul he closed the shutters and carefully fastened them he turned to go back to bed curiously trembling then as he did so the whole singular delusion caught him with the shock that held him motionless up rose the stupendous apparition of the entire desert and stood behind him on that balcony swift as thought in silence the desert stood on end against his very face it towered across the sky hiding orion and the moon it dipped below the horizons the whole grey sheet of it rose up before his eyes and stood through its unfolding skirts ran ten thousand eddies of swirling sand as the creases of its grave clothes smoothed themselves out in moonlight and a bleak scarred countenance huge as a planet gazed down into his own through his dreamless sleep that night two things lay active and awake in the subconscious part that knows no slumber they were incongruous one was evil small and human the other unearthly and sublime for the memory of the fear that haunted vance and the sinister cause of it pricked at him all night long but behind beyond this common intelligible emotion lay the crowding wonder that caught his soul with glory the sand was stirring the desert was awake ready to mate with them in material form brooded close the car of that colossal entity that once expressed itself through the myriad life of ancient egypt End of chapter 5 of Sand